Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are beginning a new book of Torah. You ended the book with Rabbi Sher last week. Uh, the book of Bereshit, uh, the book of Genesis, ending with the uh, story of Yosef, ending that story of Yosef. We studied it together, uh, and Yosef uh, brings Jacob down to Egypt, uh, and Yosef is in power, and bringing his family to Egypt is the beginning of the story of enslavement, uh, and how we uh, begin then the book of Exodus, the book that is going to talk about our redemption from slavery. Now, for those of you who have been to the women's Passover events, um, a lot of some of this, a lot of this may be repetitive and familiar to you, but we come to Torah and read the Torah every year. So uh, I'm eager for you to write down any points you want to be sure uh, that get covered that you've learned with me in learning this text. We didn't look at it last time we were in the triennial because we looked at the commissioning of Moses at the burning bush. So it's been at least six years since we've studied the, the this part of the Exodus story together. Uh, and like I said, I do teach the women of the Exodus. I have taught uh, one of them each year for the women's Passover celebration. Um, so we've studied this a couple of times together. Uh, individual women, looking at it from their different perspectives. So um, it's a lot to me to imagine getting into an hour. So I I will try to condense um, and because there's so much, there's so much, so much, so much is my favorite. One of my favorite parts of Torah. You're not supposed to have favorites as a rabbi. It's like having a favorite child um, or a favorite burner on the stove. But we all do. Let's just admit it. We all do. Now, that favorite child could change week to week. I understand that. Um, but um, but we do have you know ones we favor. So I, I love this part of Torah. I think it's fabulous for uh, us as women, us as humans, um, to really pay close attention to a story that we feel like we know super well. But there's always more. Every time I come back to it, there's more. Um, but it is really an incredible story. Um, so we're going to begin the book of Exodus together. We're going to begin the book of Shemot. So So and these are the names of the descendants of Israel that came to Egypt with Jacob, uh, each coming with his household. And now we get all of these names. What you get the twelve tribes, right? Reuben was the eldest of the children of Israel, with Shimeon and Levi, the next in line. Okay, so we get all the namings of all of the names of all of the sons, all the men. The total number of persons that were of Jacob's issue came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt. So we get Jacob, Joseph, the sons, Bnei Israel, the descendants of Israel. Men, 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 men. And names, 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 names. Okay, that sets us up for what's coming next. Write the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. They did that. Like, and this word, they swarmed. Like, it's like insects. Like, they are, they are like really, really proliferating. Uh, a lot, a lot. And they filled the earth. But remember, that's the commandment from Genesis. 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here we get the fulfilling of that uh, mitzvah. Vayakam melech hadash al mitraim asher lo yada et Yosef. And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. All right, so now why do we care whether the Pharaoh knows Joseph or not? Why do we care? Joseph was a hero. What else was Joseph? Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> right? Joseph Joseph is a hero, a hero for Egypt, and he's a Jew. If the new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph, what does that mean? <laughs> doesn't know about the Jews, right? And doesn't know about their connection, doesn't know about their Okay. So, this is this is how Forgetting is how lots of things come to catastrophe, right? When we forget. There's many Midrashim that say the Pharaoh hasn't changed. That Pharaoh chooses to not know anymore, right? Like lots of oppressors who choose not to know, right? They know, right? But they don't want to know, right? Okay. Um Vayomer, and he says to his people, look, the Israelite people are too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. What does fear always lead to? (laughs) Fear leads to hatred and to, you know, genocide. I mean, it leads to murder. It leads to... Fill in blank, right? So he becomes afraid that they are becoming too numerous. They could fight against him. And therefore, let us set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built garrison cities for Pharaoh. Pitom veramses. So this is why in Hebrew, with this expression in modern slang, when kids or those of us who are 57 uh, say mapitom, Mapitom, like what suddenly? And pitom means suddenly. So like mapitom. So often adults who are fed up with hearing mapitom answer pitom veramses. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, so they built the cities of pitom and ramses, uh, probably storage cities. Uh, they did not build pyramids. <laughs> these are probably the storage cities of pitom and ramses. So build it, uh, public building projects that were about uh, storage of grain and other things like that. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And the Egyptians ruth, uh, ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors that they made them perform ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. So Egypt is all about building, 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 building. What are, if we're not talking about the storage buildings and we're talking about the famous buildings of Egypt, what are those buildings about? What is Egypt's building projects about? Which is about what? Death. death. Egypt, okay. is a, Egypt is about death. Egypt's building projects, all of those resources that are going into building are about death. So let's see how that plays out in our story. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Pay attention to the Hebrew. La miyaldot ha'ivriot. 
We don't know what this means exactly. It could have been stated clearly. Torah chooses not to do that. Can either mean the Hebrew midwives, meaning the midwives are Hebrew, or it can mean the Hebrew midwives, the midwives assigned to the Hebrews, right? You're the southern police force. It doesn't mean you're southern. It means you're serving in the south of the city, right? You know, so the, it is left completely ambiguous. It can mean either one. So it's up to us, the reader, to decide, are these Hebrew midwives or are they the midwives assigned to the Hebrews? Possibly they are from another oppressed class because that's the people you can trust to report back as another threatened population. Um, it is less likely that we would expect Hebrew midwives to be ready to carry out the orders that Pharaoh is about to give. Um, you all who have studied with me know how I prefer to interpret this, and that is that they are, in fact, not Hebrews. And we'll get to why I like that interpretation better. So she, they, so Pharaoh, oh, Melech Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt, talks to these midwives. Shem ha'achat shifra, one is shifra, v'shem ha'shenit pu'ah. The second one is named pu'ah. Aviva Zorenberg does a whole thing about their names. The Midrash has reams written about these names and what they mean. Vayomer, uh, and says, when you attend, you know, when you're, when you're birthing the Hebrews and you see on the birth stones, im ben, if it's a son, who, right, then kill him. The imbat, vachaya. But if it's a girl, vachaya, it will live. So why didn't Pharaoh just have soldiers come in and do this? They could be station soldiers and all you have to do is wait for somebody to not come out of the house or start screaming or whatever or wait for the midwives to be summoned and then send the soldiers in given that the israelites were basically slaves why before this would the egyptians send in midwives in other words if if these were not jewish everyone has midwives yes but what I'm saying is, why would the Egyptians send it in? They, they slaves? don't. They don't. So these were Jewish. Uh, no, we, there could be Egyptian women whose job is to help with birthing. Just because you're a slave doesn't mean you don't have help, bir- oh, help birthing. Yes, but I'm saying, but why would the ruling countries send in midwives? I, I mean, they, okay. I, I mean. <laughs> We we don't know, we don't know if they're Egyptian or not. That you're saying that's an argument for them not being Egyptian is why would Egypt waste resources? If you're oppressing a, a class, one of the things you want to do is keep very careful records of births. Particularly if you own slaves, you might have Egyptian midwives whose job it is to keep track of every birth because your property essentially right think of the nazis you know they kept very careful records you think of slave owners in this country they kept very careful records and do you want the hebrews keeping records about births or do you want egypt right so there's there's arguments to be made on both sides about who these women are who these midwives are didn't the uh hebrew women go into the fields 
and have their babies. You are now dealing with the midrash that we studied. Okay. <laughs> okay. Which is a fabulous midrash that I wish we had time to do because you know I taught two yeah. years. I taught two <laughs> I, women's satyrs on that topic of that midrash. It's a fabulous midrash, um, but but it is not Torah. Okay. Um, so although we're going to see a little bit of that kind of imagery being used. All right. Um, so let's go to. Yeah. Oh, so. It seems easier to send in soldiers. So possibly when you're dealing with genocide, when you're dealing with, you know, some kind of murderous policy as the oppressor, you start often in secret. Things start quietly. So it's possible Pharaoh is calling them and saying, make it look like an accident or the baby was born dead or right there, you know, something happened, you know, like on the birthing stool, take care of it quietly, right? Like if you have soldiers with swords coming in and chopping off babies' heads, you're really putting yourself out there, right? And possibly Pharaoh is starting like so many genocidal operations um, and agendas, it starts in secret and starts quietly. I was struck as you were reading it by the king, the Pharaoh, saying there's too many Jews and they're not going to be loyal to me. Just this very week, I saw the results of a poll that said like 38% of the people in the United States think that Jews are uh, more loyal to Israel than to the United States. So that type of anti-Semitism is really old. And very powerful, right? It generates a lot of fear. Um, And people who want to um, capitalize on hate, capitalize on ignorance and fear. And you'd never know that Jews were 0.02% of the world population. Correct. 0.19% and falling. And there are even countries with no Jews with this anti-Semitism. Correct. All right. Now pay attention at verse 17. Vatirena hamialdot et Elohim. But the midwives feared God. This is the good kind of fear. This is the fear that's about awe. Right? Avraham is called a God-fearing person, right, after the Akedah. Um, so this is the first time, though, that we get it as a verb. This is the first instance in the Torah of being in awe of that which is bigger, and it's the midwives. And they didn't do what was told to them to do by the king of Egypt. They enlivened the children, right? They let them live. So Egypt is all about building, all about these huge projects that doesn't care about the individual, that doesn't care about life. It's all there to glorify this death and what happens after that. Not this life, not people, these projects about death. What does the mid, what do the midwives stand for? Life. Each individual child is a precious life, right? You start to see the message of Torah already in how this literary unit is put together, right? An incredibly beautiful, um, I think, uh, use of the very terse Hebrew language that Torah is always using. All right. So they're all about v'tachyena. They, they, they enlighten, they allow these children to live, but it's, it's not, it's less passive in Hebrew, right? They, 
they liven the children. They save them. They save their lives. The king gets word of this, that the birth rate has not gone down in the slave population. So he summons the midwives. What happens if Pharaoh is displeased and you are summoned before Pharaoh to explain yourself? It is not going to be good. So uh, he says to them, why have you done this thing that you allowed the children to live? And we know he's talking about the boy children. Vatomrana, uh, so Vataamarna, they said, who did the miyadut, the uh, midwives, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are, your translation says, vigorous. <laughs> what is the word in Hebrew? What's the word in Hebrew? Verse 19. Chayotena. They are beasts. <laughs> Animals. Chaya from the word life. They are. So the midwives in this tongue-in-cheek insult to Pharaoh, who is such a racist, that it works. They say, well, we just can't get there in time. They're like cattle. They're beasts. I remember like the biggest slur that someone said about Michelle Obama was that she was a beast, right? You, you know, you use animal language. They're not even human. They're like subhuman. They're beasts and they just like drop them in the field before we could get there, right? The, before the midwife can get to them, they've given birth. They just drop them. We don't even know where it's happening. They just drop them. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. Another argument that these are not Hebrew midwives is that they so convincingly talk about these these Hebrews as if they are a lower, a subhuman, right? I don't know that that would go over as well if they themselves were Hebrews, right? I don't know that, how well that would sell. Um, but they use Pharaoh's xenophobia and racism against him. And he, he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Got it. I didn't know that. But that makes sense, right? Those beastly Hebrew women. Do you think that this is woman to woman, that the women, the midwives, decided, I just can't kill a kid. I'm sorry. Um, I just can't. And so then they told the Pharaoh, oh, they're like crazy <laughs> people. All right, let's hold that. Yeah. Let's hold that yeah. till we get to further to on women? in the story. Yes. Well, it also seems like these would not be Hebrew midwives because why would the Pharaoh tell them when their job is to deliver babies, why would the Pharaoh tell them to make sure that the boys didn't survive? Like, if Well, because if they were Hebrews – they're still beholding to Pharaoh. They still report to Pharaoh. Yeah. He says, y'all midwives need to be sure the, ne the, the next part of your job is to make sure the boys are dead. Right. But it's unlikely if they were Hebrews that they would do that to their own. Although, can you imagine Pharaoh thinking that they would dare defy him? Jews. I, Jews. I mean, yeah. they, you know, I mean, so oppressed people often move up the ranks by 
turning on other, they, a lot of them don't have a choice, right? They, you know, if, they, if they're midwives and, and everyone kind of agrees that Shifra and Pooh are, are in charge of midwives. It's not just two midwives that he randomly called. He wouldn't know their names. Like the, the midwives in chief are summoned and it's like, here's the new orders from the Nazis. You, you, did Jews comply with the orders of the Nazis? You better believe they did. What, what was their, what was their choice? Like, I'm sorry. You know, one of the things I love about this class is I always see these things like new. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Job security. No, no, but what I was thinking, what I was thinking of was, was the midwives, you know, there's so much since you're bringing in, you know, um, the 20th century, you know, this idea of, of righteous Christians. And it's almost like this whole population is about to suffer a collective punishment. And it, gives me a new appreciation. You know, this is kind of very similar. You know, these are kind of righteous individuals who will suffer nonetheless, but are doing doing the right thing. But remember, there's a one little piece that's really important, which is it says an Erev Rav left with Moshe. If you want out and you're with us, come with us. So... So there's a very big possibility that they were given the op- they opted in and left and, and were not punished. But isn't that the understanding that a large portion of them who were not part of the <clears throat> Jewish tribe, you could say, did opt in? That yeah, isn't that what happened? We hope. Yeah. I mean, I like to tell the story that way. Yeah. That we are not about purity of descendants from. You know, uh, Yisrael or Yaakov, that we are about anyone who's with this project, come join us. And the more, sorry, the more traditional way. I don't know. I think I was just brainwashed a little bit as a child <laughs> because I'm thinking of it as the righteous Jews and the bad Egyptians. And now, you know, as you reflect on it, it's kind of people are people. There's good ones, bad ones. You know what I'm saying? And 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 that even in the Exodus. It's not exclusively the Jews that are delivered. It's other populations. And it, it gives you a kind of more nuanced appreciation. And, and one, frankly, that's a little more believable than, than, than the story that I was brought up with. Yes. And that's what we're here for, right, is to, is, is to look at Torah differently than how kind of the project in the past has been or what it will be in the future. You know, it's our job to look at it now and to bring our, you know, our perspectives to it. Yes. This is the beginning of a story that in a way ends with the last plague. Because just as Pharaoh said, kill the sons of the Israelites, that last plague, which is always so disturbing to us, makes a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense. It's it's a literary device to say, you said kill all the Jews. Well, guess what? Here's a plague. It's going to kill the firstborn Egyptians. Right. Males. Males. You said kill the Hebrew males. Right. The plague is going to kill the firstborn Egyptian males. Okay. So we were studying with Yehuda Kurtzer um, in Jerusalem, and he had this wonderful, wonderful set. He said, and he quoted somebody, and I'm sorry, I'm, I, w- I was so tired then, and I'm so tired now, I can't remember. But he said um, that be- becoming Jewish is not the Kierkegaardian leap of faith. You know, Kierkegaard who talked about the leap of faith, he says it is an, it is a leap of solidarity, which I just got chill bumps saying it again. Right. So it's not a Kierkegaardian leap of faith to become Jewish. It is a leap of solidarity that it's anyone who's with us join, join us and we're out of here, right? To build something else. 
two questions. One, this is the first time that I recall Israelites being called Hebrews. So that's one question. And the other is the, uh, the, uh, uh, they didn't, no, did not perform, uh, it said that they did not want to kill the babies because of fear of God. But if they were Egyptian, God was indeed the Pharaoh. It says Elohim, gods, possibly. Is it okay. Elohim, capital E, or is it Elohim, gods, okay. that they had a different relationship to what that meant? Okay, and so it wasn't the Pharaoh. Okay. So some could argue, ah, this proves they're Hebrews. But others could argue, it didn't say yud heh hey, it said Elohim, which can be gods with a little g, but that they had a different relation. Even the rabbis are like, oh, they had a, you know, deep relationship with, you know, the divine. But we can think about that the same way that there are Christian anti-Semites, there are Christians who risk their lives out of their relationship to their understanding of Christianity that mandated them to risk their lives. Okay. Could you um, comment on, on why he, is it so that this is the first time Hebrew was... We, we, I, I'm, I'm going to like get over my feelings about the fact that I taught a whole shiur on this, George, about Ivrim, about uh, Hebrews. But it was years ago, so I will, I will deal with my feelings about it. Um, so, <laughs> right. so uh, we talked about over to cross over. Avraham crosses over. And so possibly this is, you know, the folks who derive from the one who crosses over, which I love, you know, one who crosses stuff, right? You know, that that's where the crosser overs, the Ivrim, the crossers overs, avor to cross over. But probably um, it is uh, from the, uh, Akkadian, I think it's Akkadian, Mesopotamian word, um, apiru, um, and th- which is an oppressed class in Egypt that we have in the record. So probably it is a, it, we are related to that class. It, it can mean kind of an oppressed class in Egypt, apiru. And so probably every abiru is close to that. All right. I don't have my board or I would show you how it, because Ivri, we're hearing the vet without the dagesh. A vet isn't v, it's b. So without the dagesh, you can't tell if that letter is a b or a v. So abiru, you know, aber is the same as avor, Ivri. Could you say that we are a people who crosses over? I, mean, I just, love that interpretation of it. Yeah. I mean, you think about it all through history. It gives mm-hmm, it that's right. Other. We're the ones who cross over. Who, who don't end up where we started, who leave, right, and, and start something else. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay. What is the greatest reward you can possibly imagine as a woman? God made for them what? Made of them what? Bites. A house. They become the founders of their own dynasties, their own uh, households, right? So as women, that is rare. All right. The Pharaoh charged all his people. Hang on to your, your, I'm hoping we'll have time. I don't know that we will, but the, this wonderful Midrash about Batim, about them, because actually God made of them households. So remember that, because the Midrash takes it very literally. God made them houses. 
So just hold on to that. And Pharaoh commands all his people saying, every boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So the project failed. Doing it in secret failed. There wasn't enough um, cooperation. And so now Pharaoh moves, as these things do, to the next phase, and now it's out in the open. Now the project is wide open. Everybody is commanded to throw the first, the firstborn, to throw the baby boys into the Nile. The Nile is the source of what for Egypt? Life. The Nile is the source of life. It waters all of the fields. It irrigates everything. It was worshipped as a god. It is the source of life. Um, and they are to destroy life, right, that they don't want to be about uh, and and turn the Nile into an agent of death. Now, a guy from Levi, the tribe of Levi, takes a daughter from Levi, unnamed. She becomes pregnant and she bears a child. She is unnamed. She's called the woman. The ben is unnamed. And she sees it, Kitov, that he is good. And she hides him for three months. You can imagine how terrifying that must be. In the slave population where the edict from Pharaoh is to destroy the boys as soon as they're born, you throw them into the Nile, she hides him for three months. A baby, an infant. They cry a lot. They make a lot of noise. She's only able to hide him for three months. Then she realizes it's just impossible. So, um, she could no longer hide him. Did she dress him as a girl, perhaps? We don't know. I don't think so, because the daughter of Pharaoh recognizes it as a boy. And she takes him, and what does she put him in? She puts him in a teva. Where's the only other place we see this word in Torah? Ha. She puts him in an ark and puts him in the water. In answer to uh, Bert, they're crawling at three months old, as you know, and they didn't have diapers, pampers. And, you know, pretty soon he's crawling around and he's showing his private so of course she could no longer keep him i get it totally she puts him in a teva she puts him in an ark she cocks it with bitumen and pitch just like noah is commanded to do and she puts him into the reeds by the banks of the oh the banks of the nile and his sister unnamed stations herself at a distance to learn what would befall him so Miriam is watching. And then Vatered Bat Paro Lirchotz. And here comes Bat Paro, unnamed, to wash Al Hayor at the Nile. Banaroteha Holchot Al Yad Hayor. And her maidens are walking along the Nile. Vatere etateva. And she sees the teva, the basket. Betochasuf. In amidst the reeds, 
And she sends forth her slave girl, and she cocks it. She, thank you. She takes it. She takes it. There's a beautiful midrash, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful midrash that says it's not her slave girl she sends. There's a there's a word in Hebrew that is like that is arm from ama. She sends out her arm to the teva, and because she is acting on behalf of life, and because she is choosing to see and to bring in this teva. A miracle happens and her arm is like extended far enough to take and pull in the basket. You have to love it. You have to love the rabbis. Right? So they're saying it's not a slave girl. It's bat paro. Her heart is set on just like Moses is going to turn aside to see the bush, that curiosity, that willingness to then go the next step. She sees, she's curious, she's willing to to reach, and because she's willing to reach out her hand, a miracle happens, and it's made super, 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 super long, and she draws in, she can kach, she can take the basket, she can take Moshe from the water. Question, though, how does that jibe with the fact that the verb is um, tish? Tishlach, so um, sending. So what she, she sends, sends out sends her arm. arm. Yes, that's what you do. You, you send, send out your, your hand arm. to shake hands with somebody. You send it out. There's probably another word for like shaking hands or putting your arm out than tishlach. Like it's it's not it's yeah. not a stretch. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> see what I did there? Do you see what I did there? Very punny. I, um, in Hebrew, I don't think it's a stretch. In English, it might be, but she stretched out her arm. Is not a that's not a stretch in in Hebrew. She sent. <laughs> it's a literal stretch. She sent out her arm. Okay. Uh, anyway, I love I love that midrash. It's one of my favorites. There's so many great midrashim about this. So um so she kachs it. She takes it. Batiftach and she opens. Batir ehu. And she sees him at Hayeled, the boy. Vehine Naar, and behold, it's a youth. There is so many problems with this verse for the rabbis that there's reams of Midrash written. She opens it and she sees him. That's all it has to say. Or she opens it and she sees at Hayeled. She sees the boy. But she sees him. The boy is already problematic for the rabbis. They're like, Department of Redundancy Department. We don't have that in Torah. So they have all this midrash about what that means. And then, hine na'ar. Here's a young boy. Na'ar is usually used of like a teen. Remember we talked about Rebecca. She's a na'ara, but it says na'ar in the written. So so there's a midrash that says, um, uh, she, who does she see? She sees the yeled, the boy, what does it mean in the first case? She sees him. Any guesses? She sees God. <laughs> Kayla's like, what? Um, so she sees him. She sees the divine presence. Et hayeled, in the boy, with the boy. Behine na'ar, and behold, it is a na'ar. His voice is the voice of a teenager, like a, right, that he's got this kind of, you know, presence and, and voice about him, 
that is far older than than his being three months old. Okay, whatever. But okay, go ahead. I, I have very little to contribute. I just want to say this was my Torah portion. <gasps> Yay! So this is very exciting for me. <laughs> so it's your bat mitzvah anniversary. Yay! All right, Bernstein. All right. And he's crying. This is the point on which the entire fate of the Jewish people turns. This moment. She has compassion for him. He cries. And it's not rachamim. It's, it's a different word. It's a, it's a, it's a word about, um, it is about compassion, but it's also about, uh, Zornberg looks at the etymology of the word and ties it to, um, a feeling of not wanting to, to waste. You know, it's, and like she, she understands the waste of life, the waste of possibility, the waste of future, and she's moved. She's, she's moved enough that what does she do? She says, this must be from the Ivrim. How does she know that? Well, A, who puts a three-month-old in a basket and sticks it in the Nile? Okay, so A, that would be terrible parenting. I mean, like, she even can't imagine somebody would do that unless you're fulfilling the commandment to put the baby in the Nile, just not the way exactly it was ordered. Um, and she sees that he's three months old. So she sees that somebody has cared for this child. Somebody defied the edict and loved this boy enough to risk their own lives and the lives of their family to to hide it for three months. And she is moved. And what does she do? And she knows. We're told she knows. Torah's letting us know she knows. This is a Hebrew child. In this moment, what is she supposed to do? Or... Call the authorities. Even if she doesn't want to have anything to do with it, you call the authorities. There's a Hebrew boy here. That's what you do. Her, the, the Pharaoh has ordered it. What does she say? There stands Miriam, a slave girl. So what does she say? Oh, sorry. Uh, Miriam says, and she's not named. Notice nobody's named here. Nobody's named. Vatomer Achoto. His sister says to the daughter of Pharaoh, Shall I go and get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? The third act of civil disobedience is a slave girl addressing royalty that is completely unheard of, death penalty type stuff. She addresses bat paro and chutzpadik that she is, chutzpanit that she is, she says, shall I fetch a Hebrew Mid, uh, midwife, uh, thank you, wet nurse, to nurse him for you. What is, what is Moshe's sister? She is the one who puts the idea in Batparo's head. He's yours. You'll need a wet nurse. And you're gonna need a stroller, and diapers, and, you know, like, you, um, get, uh, there's so much great furniture down the road. There's this great guy who may, right? So you need a crib. You need, okay. So she makes the suggestion. He's yours. And Batpar O answers very simply, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> right? Um, Lechi, go. So the girl went and called who? Em Hayeled, the mother of the boy. Still no names. So Jody, this is going to go to your point. No names are being used here. This is on purpose. I I cannot believe we get their names later. It's not like Torah doesn't know who these people are, right? It's not like their names were lost to us. We ha- we have who Torah wants to call them, right? So why is there no names? Hang on, we're gonna get there. Vatomer la bat paro, and bat paro says to her, So. Bapa'o says to the mother of the boy, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. So what happens here? We get the verb again. And she takes the boy and nurses. All of this taking is only made possible by women. Women who are unnamed. Why, he asks Mark, and Jody said something earlier, why no names? Torah easily could have used the names. And I think, and many, it's not because of me, I've read many scholars who believe because this is about what women do. It's not a particular woman. It's not some, like, it's like, it's like, because she's her, she does this. That they are unnamed because this is how women behave that they are on the side of life they are the birthers they are the the carers the chemla they are the ones that have chemla like they they have compassion and mercy and take risks on behalf of that that make no sense that have to come from something some other place and they therefore are the ones on which so many things turn and certainly on which our story uh, is going to turn. So Yocheved, who put her son in the water, hoping, hoping there would be someone who would feel chemla, trusting that there would be chemla out there in someone, takes the ultimate risk, trusting her child to that hope. We get that in Bat Paro, who does not choose to see Moshe as other, who does not choose to see him as slave, as object, as, you know, Pharaoh's order. You know, and she chooses to respond to him as a yelled, as a boy, and she risks by taking him in. Miriam risks on his behalf by speaking, and Yocheved is now, it was just tragic to me on some level. All of you know I'm adopted, so I have so much stuff tied up with birth mother, adoptive mother, like the whole thing. It's very powerful for me that the birth mother who risks, you know, what it means to give over a child, hoping someone will love it and save it and raise it, that's all she can hope for. She can't arrange it. She has to trust, she has to hope. And and then Bat Paro is willing to see this as not an other, but as her own, and then pays the birth mother to nurse and care for her son. Pays her wages to do that, and we're going to see that what happens here, that he grows up. By Gadel, hang on, by Yigdal, he, he grows up. 
When are babies weaned in the ancient world? What age? Three or four. When their permanent teeth, when their food-eating teeth start to come in or can come in enough that they can eat, they are nursed until then. Imagine his birth mother nursing him and raising him until he's four. And then what happens? He grows up. Um, wait, 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 no, sorry. When the child grew up, she brought him to Bat Paro, who made him her son. Now what do we get? She named him Moshe, explaining, I drew him out of the water. Surely he had a name before that. And surely Bat Paro has a name, right? They don't matter. This is the moment, right, that it matters. What do the rabbis name her? What do the rabbis name Bat Paro? Batya, daughter of God. For them, in this act of defying Paro, she is adopted by the God of Pharaoh's enemy, Yudhevavheh. She becomes Batya. She betrays that system. She betrays that decree. And affirming Chemla and life, she takes a risk. And in doing so for the rabbi, she becomes Batya. She becomes the daughter of the enemy of Paro. Oh, sorry. No, I just, it was interesting because last week we were, um, you know, talking about how women don't really play an important role. We were? Well, sort of. We were talking about that no, 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 last you, week? You were, you were. Were we? I'm having a little chat with Rabbi Sher. <laughs> no, um, no, no it, it was sort of, it, this is kind of a redemption for, for women's role. But I'm bummed. See what you did there? Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but the other thing I wanted, so um, what, one of my kids is a classics major, so I get it's a, a lot what? Of, uh, he's a classics major. Yeah. So we talk a lot about um uh, uh, Greek mythology, and it's really interesting. I suddenly realized that in Greek mythology, the story is always you sort of grow up a peasant, and then you discover at of some course. point that your father is a god, of course. and your journey is to find your your god father and, and claim who you are. And Moses is exactly the opposite. He grows up. No, no, no. You don't think so? This is a classic hero tale. No, classic. no, but what Just I'm saying like is he grows up thinking he's a prince in a big shot and what he discovers is that he's a slave it's it's the opposite direction in in a way but it is very much a classic hero tale okay. it's an infant whose life is immediately put in danger he's miraculously saved right. he does become son of the you know daughter of the king he you know and then in escaping his fate he becomes his in, in escaping his people's fate he actually becomes part of his people's fate. it's a classic hero tale i understand the difference i understand but i'm saying i don't want to say this is so different from greek mythology this is classic hero narrative stuff this is the classic Hero tale. Moshe has to go through trials, tribulations, and then comes out the other side, the deliverer of the people, the prophet of the God. Of course, our story is going to be different because we have a different point than the Greek stories are trying to make, but this is a classic hero tale uh, from antiquity. I just want to add a dimension. Um, yep. I think this is the evolution of God from Bereshit to Shemot, and that the name Batya that he saw God or she saw God in the basket. So we begin to grow the relationship with God 
as we begin to create our mythology story. Lovely. Intertwined. Lovely. Okay. There's another connection with Brashit. When it says that uh, the boy was born, his mother in English here, it says she saw how beautiful he was. She says Tov. I was just going to say, she says Tov, how good, which is a reflection of what God said on all the days of creation. So there's a connection. And this, in a way, is the creation of the Jewish people. Yes. All right. So um, two of my favorite books, um, or my favorite uh, folks studying this stuff, um, is Aviva Zornberg, of course. You know how I feel about Zornberg. Um, my teacher of blessed memory, uh, Tikva Freimarkensky, wrote Reading the Women of the Bible, a fabulous book that goes beyond the five books and talks about other women in Torah, a really good uh, way to study um, the women of Torah. Um, and then one of my favorite works on this part of Exodus, Moses, A Stranger Among Us by Maurice Harris, one of my absolute favorite uh, books. Um, and they, we, we don't have time. I know we're running out of time. Okay. Um, ah, all right. Anything from people at home that you want to say? We've been talking a lot in here. Any of y'all want to say anything? Uh, yeah, just, Lee, Hannah. I'm, I'm really struck by the fact that this is like, this is a story about the actions of women, but at that like, sort of like river crux point, like it's also about the actions of, of specifically young women, like, Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter I'm imagining them as teenagers and I feel like in our world teenage girls get such crap and it's so interesting to sort of look at the fate of the Jewish people in the hands of teenage girls who like take really big brave responsible actions I love that I love that Lee that's a really excellent point that Teenagers being, you know, blah, 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 right, is all about our culture and all about what we want to put on them. And all of, yes, they're those things. They're hormonally, it breaks their brains. Like, you know, like they're, they're dealing with broken brains. And they are also open to possibilities that we have aged out of, some of us, in terms of how we tend to see the world and what we're willing to do and risk and become and stand for. And the same things we criticize them for so much in our culture I have a 19 year old, so like hold me with deep compassion. Um, like I get it. Like it's, it can be very frustrating and, and very challenging. And that's kind of the point, right? Who's going to challenge the authority that isn't always so right or good or healthy or what needs to be happening, right? Something else needs to happen. I love that, that they're about possibility. The teenagers are about possibility. I love that. And about the chutzpah and about risking and about seeing things differently and about being open like to things that we think are crazy. I'm just going to say. All right. Um, so uh, Tikva Freimerkensky um, talks about this name, Moshe, but we don't have time. So um, I'm going to give you all uh, these. <laughs> Oh, wow. Uh, Lee, just, Lee Sultan just added the women of Iran. All the young people of Iran, the women and, men, and young men in Iran, right? It's the young men who are about to hang and are hanging, right? Um, but right, the, that absolute courage uh, of conviction. Okay. Tick for Freimarkensky from Reading the Women of the Bible. Pharaoh has a problem. Just as he took no heed of daughters, Daughters take no heed of him, meaning he said, let the daughters live. Who really cares? 
right? He took no heed of the daughters. They don't mean anything. They're whatever. They're not a threat. So the daughters take no heed of him. Immediately, two daughters defy Pharaoh's command and act to preserve the life of a boy child. Um, the Bible records the name of Moshe's mother, Yocheved, and his sister, Miriam. And Midrash adds the name Bitya for the daughter of Paro, but none of them is named in this story. For like the anonymous daughters of the book of Judges, they are archetypal. They are daughters, women, the very ones overlooked by both Pharaoh and the tradition that remembered, she puts that, that dash there on purpose, that hyphen, who remembered the names of only the men who came to Egypt. Three subversive daughters have foiled the plans of men and shaped the destiny of the world. Can we just get Can we, men? Right? Like, <laughs> mic drop, or as we say in Hartman, because it was a funny thing happened, like, good job us, right? Um, okay, Baruch Hashem, good job us. Shana um, Tova. Uh, so we, um, we have this wonderful quote from... Uh, from her, we have this wonderful quote from Maurice Harris. The seeding of a new era of history can happen in the brief moment it takes for a single person to have a change of heart. In that moment, when compassion stirs one person to the point of some small act of resistance to a system of evil, we witness an aspect of reality that no CEO, president, dictator, or supreme leader can eliminate from the human experience. Compassion's version of the butterfly effect. And I, I brought you, like, it's from three different pages in his book. I just, I just had to put some more in here because I need, I need it right now and I need to preach it right now. So just bear with me. The success, and he has more than this, but I wanted to give you a taste. The success of the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott teaches us that we should organize and ready ourselves for those moments when the inevitable cracks in unjust power structures begin to rupture so that we can take advantage. The cracks are there. Preparation increases the odds that when light comes pouring through a small crack, people will be ready to widen the crack and let a wave of light rumble through. The story of Batya teaches something perhaps even more hopeful. So he's talking about folks who organize and then are ready. But he said, but the story of Batya teaches something perhaps even more hopeful. The impression we get from the text is that Batya, and he says more in his book about, was not agitating with and allying and having secret meetings with Hebrew women and forming coalitions, right? That's, that's not what's happening. Had most likely lived well within the privileged bubble of the royal court, and that her decision to rescue the Hebrew baby was a purely spontaneous act of compassion. The implication is that even without an organizing effort by a committed resistance movement, The system can't prevent all the possible things that can happen to undermine its grip on power. There really is a crack, or more likely cracks, in everything. And some of the cracks are close to the center of power. Try to control every human heart to seal off the possibility of love weeding its way somehow to the surface. It's beyond any system's capacity for control. Let us pray. Let us hope. Let us, right, do what we need to do to soften our own hearts to be ready, right, to respond when there's a moment of possible chemla. Um, and let us organize and let us have things in place so that when there's a possibility and there's an opportunity, we are ready to 
activate and motivate and right and a hundred percent Martin Luther King weekend, right? That we're studying, we're studying his Torah. Are you kidding? This is the Torah of Martin Luther King, right? Dr. King's, you know, Reverend King's, this is his Torah. All right. Um, and we'll close with Chaya Kaplan Lester. Midrash Hagadol illustrates this idea beautifully in its weaving of a story of Faro. We're going back to when we said Batya of Shifra and Puab, God took note of them and made them houses. Um, in its weaving, Faro sends guards to capture the delinquent midwives. It says that God saves the women by turning them into the beams of a home. The guards search the house to no avail. For Shifra and Pua have become embedded in the house itself. They are the beams, the fortifying forces that uphold the entire structure. All the women who didn't make it, all the women who defied Pharaoh and paid with their lives so that we could enjoy the freedoms we have, all the women still there and to whom we owe a debt, we are bound to explore how to pay. They are the beams of this house. They are what supports it even as they fall and are destroyed. We are their sisters, their daughters, their offspring that they preserved and saved so that we could create the reality that would become redemption. Will we honor their sacrifices? That is the question. for all of those who have gone before, and when we talk about we talk about King and we talk about the successes, but of course, you know what Chaya, uh, whatever Lester is pointing out is there are many who did not make it. In every situation of oppression, most even at the time don't make it, and so um, they are they are those who risked, those who were willing to sacrifice, those who were willing to have chemla and what that might mean and the courage to act on it um they are the they are the pillars of this house um and it is uh, we who get to create reality that for us is redemption um let us let us create a society worthy of their efforts their hope their dreams their sacrifices uh and uh, may we in in honor of all of those who have had vision, uh, let us not lose hope that we too can in this country and in the state of Israel create um, a society that we would call one that is redeemed. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org